We live in a modern, hyper-connected world where everything is becoming smart and connected. Curious about what lies ahead and how this will impact your daily life? I'm Brett Jordan, and this is Smarter Everything, a podcast on the future of connectivity powered by a pharaoh. The idea of connecting products and systems to computers is not new, nor is it limited to light bulbs, ceiling fans, and garage door openers in the consumer space. In fact, back in the 1960s, industrial control applications started using the SCADA protocol as a means of connecting these industrial control systems, or ICS systems. Today, nearly every aspect of critical infrastructure is controlled by an ICS system. These systems control things like power stations, water filtration systems, stoplights, hydroelectric and nuclear power plants, and much, much more. In today's episode of Smarter Everything, we will be talking with Waylon Grange, one of the best security researchers and reverse engineers. He is former agency and now works at Dragos, helping to protect the very fabric of everything that we rely on. One concept that will come up today is the concept of reverse engineering, or RE. This is often discussed in regards to malware analysis. It is the simple idea of taking the malware or malicious application, tearing it apart, and figuring out exactly how it works by inspecting every bit of the code. But RE work can apply to many different things, including undocumented communication protocols or even cryptographic systems. Wayland has been working in this space for decades and has a lot of experience with various forms of cryptography, cryptographic implementations, threat intelligence, ICS systems, and tracking and exposing threat actors and their campaigns as they try to disrupt our very way of life. We will be talking about his experiences in finding issues and problems with botnets, threat actor groups, solar panels, and much, much more. Please join us today as we take a look at the darker side of smart and connected things here on Smarter Everything. Here's my conversation with Waylon. So Waylon, it's good to see you. It's uh, It's been some time since we've last talked. Yeah, it's good to see you again, Brett. It's been a little bit. So what, uh, what, what have you been working on recently? Yeah, so recently I have kind of transitioned over to full-time RE on protocol analysis. Um, so rather than doing reverse engineering, looking at malware or looking for vulnerabilities, I'm doing reverse engineering, looking at ICS devices, trying to understand the protocol that they're speaking a lot of times that's a proprietary protocol and, and it's not documented. So we're looking at how may an attacker use that to issue tasks to the ICS device. And then perversely, as a defender, how can we then detect when somebody's trying to tell a device to do something nefarious, possibly hidden to the front end user? So just for people that are listening, what is an ICS device? That may be an acronym that people may not be familiar with. ICS devices are industrial control systems, right? Gate is another a popular term, but they, they don't quite one-to-one mesh. Basically, these are devices that can control pumps, that control transformers for power. They can control many different things. Uh, the airline uses a lot of them. Hospitals use a lot of these devices. Power, um, your water, your public utilities. A lot of critical infrastructure depends heavily on these type of devices, right? Anything where the computers 
kind of mesh with physical environment, you a lot of times will find an ICS type device in that realm. Yeah. So I think, you know, for the listeners, you know, uh, industrial control system or ICS system, things like the power grid and the water systems and the telephone infrastructure and, and all of those sort of things, you know, and, and how it relates to kind of things that we've been talking about on this podcast is this, you know, smart and connected aspect. You know, originally, a lot of the connected nature of these systems was through this ICS type environment. But that's really interesting. I know you're one of the leading, you know, reverse engineers in this space and doing a lot of analysis. I, I think you're doing a lot of assembly level work now. I know you did a lot of work on crypto systems, attacking all of the various implementations there. And, you know, so we think about this in the smart and connected space. I think you have some experience on maybe some solar panels or something. Maybe you want to give us a little bit of background or a little bit of story about that. Sure. You're sure. Yeah. That was a project I did back in 2020. And we started on that. It really well, I found myself with some spare time at home, right? Many of us were home a lot that year. And um, my neighbor had just gotten this new solar panel system installed. And he was describing all the features and how he can control it with his phone. And as I kept describing things, I was like, hmm, that's interesting. And it doesn't quite sit well with me. So I want to look at that. So I found myself a similar model to his. I didn't test on his system. On eBay, I grabbed it. And um, I just started uh, doing vulnerability analysis on it and trying to understand how it communicated with the cloud and, and what it did. I ended up opening the device up and pulling the firmware off the device. And then once I was able to look at that firmware image, then I, I started to look at what kind of attacks could be made. I knew the device was running like an SSH server, right? And I wanted to get like SSH access to the device when it's running, but I didn't know the, the root user password. As I started looking at the firmware, I found the root password and I was like, oh, that's easy. I'll, I'll just change this password and then log in. And I changed the user password and I still couldn't log in. And that was kind of interesting to me. So I started looking at the firmware, trying to understand what it was doing. And I realized that it had a hook on the authentication module. Like somebody had written a custom authentication hook so that if you changed the, you know, the Etsy shadow or the Etsy password file, it didn't even use that. They were using this custom hook that was based on the serial number. And so I reversed that process and found out that basically the password is hard-coded based on the serial number. It's derived off of the serial number and you can't change it. So this led to a lot of vulnerabilities. One, because end users can't secure their devices, right? Like as soon as somebody knows the serial number and if they know this algorithm, then they can know your password. And it turns out like the serial number is widely available. It's like on the outside of the shipping box. It's like on three different places physically on the device, but it'll even tell it to you. Like if you visit the webpage, it's like, oh, here's my serial number. So it's pretty simple for an attacker once they've found this vulnerability to just SSH into anybody's solar panel controller and then muck with the settings or the features of the solar panel controller. There was a number of vulnerabilities with this. One, they were rolling their own crypto. And two, they made it so a hard-coded password was set on the box and nobody could change it, right, without a firmware update or, or something. And, and there was a few others along the way. But yeah, it's quite a fun project. Yeah, it's amazing how many of these companies just get this fundamental security stuff wrong. I know you've done a lot of work in this space for a vast number of years and you're highly sought after. Your skill set is amazing. But it's, you know, as we start thinking about this smart and connected world and as it, it expands, you talk about solar panels, you know, like that is a smart and connected thing that people are going to have in their house. And, you know, as you start thinking about how you might 
compromise those systems and then move laterally, you know, inside of the home network and gain access to other things that are more sensitive or people care a little bit more about it, it begins to get scary. And I know I've looked at a lot of devices, pulling firmware off of a device, you know, it's definitely a skill, but it, it's not rocket science, right? It's not like sending somebody to the moon. And it's just alarming how many people and how many companies just get this wrong. And like, sometimes they don't even do the basic security hygiene, which is, is just kind of scary. Like you look at it, you're like, oh, like this is, you know, like if you're not doing that, then clearly you're not doing any of the more advanced security stuff because you're not even basically mounting the file system as read only, right? You know, you're still mounting it in a read write, you know, mode. So yeah, no, that's very true. We did another audit for a security product. It was supposed to be some kind of like local alert system in a case of emergency, like you could still get the radio or, or still get messages locally. But um, the device had like a cloud component where it would like log into the cloud and see what messages there were. And as we started analyzing it, we realized that the cloud permissions that the device had were wide open. So the device was fairly secure, but its cloud component wasn't, right? The pairing piece to it. And so then with those cloud permissions, we could then go walk the cloud and see, well, what devices are calling home? What permissions do they have? Like you could then iterate the cloud and then get down to somebody else's device. So hacking one device, I got permissions to the cloud and the cloud gave me permissions to everybody's device. And then from there, like we could set off the beacon alarm to everybody or to send an alert to whatever device you wanted. You're right. There's this marriage between like the security of the device and as it's starting to get connected to the internet the security of how it talks to things on the internet. And I think it was funny. You mentioned like some of these guys don't even try or some of them do try and it, it might've failed, right? Going back to the solar panel thing. I can't say what I, the author was doing when they wrote this custom authentication module. Like I don't know what was going on in his mind, but it felt very much like they knew that having a, a single password for root on all the devices was a bad idea. So they wanted a custom password for each device. and But then their implementation led to more vulnerabilities, right? It's like, I, it's like, I know that this is not right, but I don't know what is. And so they kind of come up with their own solution. And if you're not experienced or you haven't had this vetted, like your security or your crypto implementation, you might think, hey, this solves the problem I had not realizing you just created four more in the in the process. Yeah, it, it's crazy. Like the EDC standard, the EN303645, you know, calls out this requirement for no universal password. And we see a lot of companies trying to do something like what you're talking about. Or, but then if they don't do it correctly, they actually start introducing a lot more problems and a lot more vulnerabilities because they just, they're like, okay, I, I know this is wrong, but... I'm going to try and do this, but I don't know if that's actually even better. Yeah, no, I totally agree. There, there's a standard, like you said, that says, hey, thou shalt not do this, but it doesn't tell you, I mean, it does, but it kind of leads you down one path and you're, you're focused solely on avoiding doing this that so you don't realize what you've done changes, has effects to other things or other issues. Cryptography is a very interesting discipline and you can dabble in it, but just dabbling is dangerous, right? It's like a tech guy when you're like, I, oh, I, I learned the command line. When you first learn the command line, you can be dangerous and you know delete things you don't post, supposed to. And it's obvious. With crypto, you can dabble in it and it's not obvious when you mess something up. 
Yeah. And I know you have tons of experience at the agency working on crypto systems and hacking on them and finding vulnerabilities and stuff. But um, yeah, I, I think it's like when I've looked at a lot of the IoT devices on the market, you know, these smart and connected things, you know, even some of the cameras, it's alarming how many of them use like shared symmetric keys or they'll use a common private key across all the devices for their, you know, S3 bucket where all the videos get stored. And I'm like, do people realize that if the cloud has the symmetric key and it's hard coded on the device, then both sides can like know everything that's going on. And if you use a shared private key across all of the devices, then every device has access to everybody else's recordings. Like, like this is really bad. And, you know, people want privacy in their home and they want privacy for their, you know, cameras and all the things that they're doing, but they go and they buy these products just completely unknown to them that they're basically opening themselves up to be monitored and watched. And we hear the horror stories of, you know, people breaking into cameras and talking to their children and doing stuff like that. So. Right. Right. And um, I mean, I've even seen cameras that use a peer-to-peer network, right? Like they figured it's hard to give somebody a device and have them configure it initially. And if it can just go out and talk to this peer-to-peer network and configure itself, that makes it so much easier for the end user. Again, usability going first and security last second, right? Because I I don't want my cameras to be part of some large peer-to-peer network that I'm not in control of. That is kind of scary for me to think about that. But it doesn't tell that as a feature. It just does it under the hood and and hopes that you magically, it'll work. And it usually does magically work if you're not looking at it. But once you start looking under the hood, I don't like what I'm seeing. Yeah, it's really hard, you know, and we're going to do a different episode in the coming weeks on, you know, UX design, but getting that Cupertino class experience, but maintaining security is really hard. And often, you know, organizations will say, oh, well, you know, the security pieces or the crypto, like that's on the roadmap, we're going to do that. But they don't realize that if you don't do that at the foundation layers, then you basically have to rewrite the entire product. Because if you don't get the crypto and you don't get the security pieces right, then all the foundation or all the building on top of it, it just doesn't work. So... Shifting gears a little bit, several years ago, you and I worked together and you worked on one of the largest civilian, you know, threat intelligence data sets. And you built the first, you know, graph analysis tool that was able to pull in a lot of this threat intelligence data. I mean, we're talking petabytes of threat intel data. And you were able to do some analysis and be able to find some things. I think you worked on a few issues, you know, maybe I don't know if you worked on the Dragonfly one, but I think you worked on the Inception uh, APT where they were doing some IoT stuff. You want to talk about that and give a little bit of history of how that worked and what your role was and what you found and maybe the things that were exciting and terrifying. And Yeah, I'd love to. That, that group was a very fun group to research. I mean, fun is just because their threat model and their TTPs were so advanced compared to some of the other things we were looking at. Um, so, yeah, we discovered that group uh, back in the day. and We called it a set Inception. And then a, a later security group relabeled them as Cloud Atlas, and that seems to be the name that stuck. So most people know that the group is Cloud Atlas. We call them Inception. But yeah, they had a very sophisticated tool set and a very narrow target, which made it very hard to uh, discover and track them because there wasn't a lot of data, right? With a small target set and a, a sophisticated tool set, there wasn't much um, noise on the wire. And, and that's that was kind of their MO. But basically, they would attack a targeted group, and then we'll kind of skip how their attack worked. 
but the target malware would call home to a public service and then they would check in with the public service to task the malware. So there's kind of like an intermediary not having the malware talk directly to the attacker, kind of separation there, trying to hide their identity. Well, we worked with the intermediary and told them, hey, your tool is being used as a man in the middle for this malware. What kind of data can you give us about who's controlling this? Like, who's logging in and setting these files here or who's basically tasking the malware? And they were very good to talk to us and work with us and tell us, oh, here's the IPs. And the IPs were all over the world and not really consistent in one set or way, at least at a first glance. It wasn't until later that we realized that all these IPs are IoT devices on the internet, and they have been man in the middling their traffic through these IoT boxes to protect their identity because they thought maybe this third-party provider would cough up details and they didn't want to be exposed as who they were. They wanted to keep their identity very stealthy. So they had compromised a huge network of IoT devices on the, on the internet. Initially, they used just a variety of vulnerabilities and weak SSH creds, but later on, uh, they changed to, to use a very specific UDP vulnerability, which allowed them to proxy their traffic through without even having to gain shell access to the box. And so they were exploiting that to have the box forward traffic on behalf of them. We never really found their true identity, right? Because we were actually able to get access to one of these devices. And so I set up a listener on this IoT device. So here I am setting up like a, a PCAP listener on this IoT device, waiting for this attacker to funnel their traffic through it. And it was kind of, it's kind of cool, right? To be like sitting there hiding, like have your own little malware. You have your own little stuff running on this box waiting for this attacker to go through your honeypot. And it worked, but all I found out was he's coming from yet another IoT device, right? They were bouncing these, nesting these together. So they were bouncing through how many, I don't know. I never did find out the true origin of the traffic, which is disappointing. I mean, there's other things you could do to kind of, determine who would be interested in what targets they were targeting and what hours operation, et cetera, et cetera. But they did so well at protecting their infrastructure and identity. And when, when we released this report, they went completely dark, right? Like they shut down all their operations for a period of time. They started back up, but they burned everything that, that we exposed and then started back up slowly again later. Um, they're still active, at least as of last year, we've seen activity from this group. Yeah, it's interesting, these threat actors and sometimes in the, the intelligence community or the IC community, we refer to them as intrusion sets. And then they launch these various campaigns and they do various things. But we're starting to see an increase of attacks against the IoT space. And I think, you know, it can be really related to surface area. There's a lot of them and a lot of manufacturers do things really wrong and do it very poorly. And so, as you said, it makes it so you can compromise one device, go to the next device, compromise it, and just kind of work your way through, and then eventually launch your real attack. There was um, some work a while back, and I'm not sure if you worked on it or not, but there was these baby cameras in South Korea that were compromised and was relaying attacks, initiating out of a, a data center in the Netherlands, and then going through these baby cameras in, in South Korea. And I think it was the attack was branded Dragonfly. But it's really interesting how these smart and connected devices are getting used. And then you think about how 
as time goes on, you know, if you have the Apple effect, right, you know, with the iPod and then the iPhone, and then all of a sudden, you know, executives at companies start bringing those into the company, and then they start bringing in their Macs, they start infiltrating the enterprise, and then eventually into critical infrastructure. What do you think is going to happen, you know, over the next, say, 24, 36 months as these smart and connected devices start infiltrating you know, the critical infrastructure and enterprise networks. I know you spent a lot of time of your career protecting enterprise networks. Like I see this as a potentially huge risk, especially for the products that aren't done well. Yeah, it's a big risk for wherever these products are installed. It's sad that's the way, right? Like on one hand, who am I to say you shouldn't have a internet aware toaster, right? Like if you want to tweet about your toast, that's fine. That's cool. I don't care. But we shouldn't have to worry about what else that toaster is bringing in with it when you it's connected to the internet or whatever these devices are that you're plugging in. But there's no real vetting process for the IoT part of anything, right? It's just you rely on the vendor and just say, trust the vendor did it right. There's no real like standards process. There's a standards process for any wireless communication, right? The FCC has a standard there and there's safety standards for making sure that your toaster doesn't light on fire. Yeah. You go buy an electrical switch or a, you know, a toaster and it has a UL mark, like you have high degree of confidence it's not going to burn your house down. Right. But like, what do you do in this IOT space? It would be nice if there was a mark that we could set. Just thinking out loud, I don't mean to steal the conversation, right? But like the government for all of their products that they buy that have an internet or a yeah, computer component, they require it to go through a certain amount of testing, right? Which includes up to a pen test on the device as well, right? So they kind of vet it for themselves, but we don't have that luxury here to like have such a huge service. But boy, we, we need it. Consumers need such a similar service for their products. Yeah, like, like in the government space, you have the common criteria, the EAL stuff. You have also on the DOD side, the CMMC, you know, certifications. You have stuff out of NIST. And, you know, I think there's a lot of work being done there because people understand the risk. But on the consumer side, it's really hard. And I know about eight years ago, I gave a talk at the Financial Services ISAC, you know, or FS ISAC, and talked about the security of banks coming down ultimately to a smart and connected light bulb. Because if you think about all of the protections you put in place, if you're not securing the light bulb, because eventually they're all going to be smart and connected, then you could compromise the bank's infrastructure by simply compromising the light bulb. And a lot of people are like, oh, you know, you know, that'll never happen. You know, smart connected light bulbs are never going to be a thing. You know, we're never going to see them. And, and now they're just prolific and they're everywhere. I think it's kind of a, an interesting take of events. Shifting gears again, I know when you and I've talked in the past, you had some sort of encounter with some sort of botnet owner. Do you want to give us a little bit of history there and kind of talk a little bit about what happened there? Yeah, yeah. So after the whole inception group stuff, I really started taking an interest to attacks against IoT devices on the internet. And I set up a number of honeypots. This was many years ago. But one of the honeypots, I, I found a rather, I mean, there, there's there's the common Mirai and whatever other families of malware that, that are just out there just doing their thing. But there was one that was very interesting that it, it built itself at another peer-to-peer -peer network where there wasn't like a single command and control center, but messages were signed and shared between the devices. So when the author wanted it to do something, he would just put it out there to one device and then they'd gradually, the message would get to all the computers in this network. And the author designed it really 
uh, robustly. Uh, I don't want to say well, because I don't like that, but it was robust a system in that it would be difficult if somebody were to try to take it down. There's not like a single point of failure. There's not like, oh, take the command and control server and they'll eventually die. There isn't a command and control server. The, the devices share messages with themselves. And I was researching this and there was a spot where the author signed it with like an anonymous email address. And so I, I reached out to that email just like, who are you? What are you doing? And we kind of went through some vetting of his ID and, and my ID. I mean, the vetting was basically that I'm actually talking to the guy who wrote this, still not sure who that is. But they were just basically like saying, oh, this was just this experiment to see how robust my network would be if I were to do something malicious, right? And we're like, who gives you the authorization to just install your wares on everybody's machines, right? Like, and he's like, oh, but I'm not a bad guy, so it's okay. Well, you can declare yourself not a bad guy, but no, nobody else knows this. And should you decide to like, oh, well, it's one step to just install your wares on somebody else's machine. It's another step to then maybe use it for something which you feel isn't bad. You can just take these steps at a time. And nobody's like, he's just his own policeman on this, right? Nobody's stopping them. In fact, they were encouraging me, like they wanted me to try and take down his network. He was like, I want to see how robust my network is. Go ahead and try to shut me down as a challenge. And it was just so off-putting, the conversation and his their views on what his research project was, right? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I'm guessing you had, you know, a lot of data coming in from the various honey pots and honey nets that you had, but also sitting on, like we talked before, you know, the largest civilian threat intelligence data set, you know, gives you windows into this visibility that most people don't have. And you can see how these threat actors and these malware campaigns can spread across devices and they can start, you know, with traditional computers or they can start in the enterprise, but then they can go to an IoT platform because it's really effective and, and they can go very laterally and very quickly and spawn a whole bunch of devices. You know, and there's been several really large IoT botnets out there that have caused a lot of problems across the internet. So, yeah, I remember they even consider themselves a vigilante saying that they were doing a service, right? Because once they got on the box, they would close the doors. But I mean, these are firmware images that just revert to whatever they were at in the last time they reboot. So he closed the doors for as long as he resided on the box. But as soon as the box reboot or he got kicked off, the box went right back to how it was before. So the service he was doing was just self-preservation as what more than any kind of vigilanteness. It's definitely interesting, all of the things. There's a lot of horror stories. I mean, there's a lot of good that can come out of, you know, this smart and connected world. And, you know, there's a lot of benefits that people can have. I think at the end of the day, people just need to be mindful that, you know, some devices aren't very secure and some devices are going to cause you a lot of problems. You need to start looking towards something that can, you know, maybe indicate that there's a level of security. I know the White House is currently looking at a labeling system. I know Singapore's done one and there's stuff coming out of the EU, the Cyber Resiliency Act. So it'll be interesting to see how all of this impacts you know, not only the traditional enterprise or government network space, but also this IoT space. And I'm sure given your role in all of the work that you do, you'll be probably at the cutting edge and leading edge of this analysis. Uh, so well, I could tell you what doesn't work. I don't know necessarily <laughs> yet what does. But yes, you, you've definitely had your hands in all of this stuff for a very, very long time. I know historically we talked and you mentioned one time that you had a run in with some law enforcement during a pen test. <laughs> yes. 
in the past, I've done not just over the wire pen test, but we've done physical pen tests as well. And this pen test was for a critical infrastructure company. Um, and they had a number of field sites they wanted us to hit. And most of them, we could get in and get out with either not getting detected or getting detected and getting out before any reasonable response could be mounted. But there was one site that um, it didn't go so well for us. And so it had a NFC door codes, right? We weren't able to break their authentication that way, but we were, were able to just pick the lock and get in. However, doing so triggers an alert that's basically called a forced entry because somebody entered using what it thinks is a key rather than a card. And so there's no associated ID with that opening of the door that you can audit the system with. And so that triggered something on the, the customer site. Um, and we kind of were assuming something like that may happen. And so I was the point man where I would stay and watch guard, see if there's any kind of response while they continued, our target was to get to the server room in this particular building. And so they continued infiltrating the building. We actually had one guy crawling through the drop ceiling and I was outside, you know, watching the clock, watching any kind of activity. And I saw no activity. I came to the uh, 20 minute mark. I was like, hey, this is 20 minutes. Should we call it or should we just continue? Because I haven't seen anything. The team would felt there's, there's nobody coming, right? If, if they haven't responded in 20 minutes, they're not gonna respond. And so they pulled me in and I just went and helped them. Our target inside, took our pictures, whatever. And as we were leaving, our point of contact with the company sent me a message like, hey, this message has been called. And so I'm like, okay, it's time to patch this up. It's time to go. I'm like, hurry and replace the drop ceiling. Like, get out of here, clean up. And so we got up, we cleaned out, we walked out. We had a hotel, it was very nearby. We were actually scoping the place from our hotel. And so we're out in our hotel parking lot thinking we got away scot-free and this highway patrol officer comes out of nowhere and he's like hands up you know like pulls his gun he's like lay down hands spread them and so we get spread out there in the parking lot of the hotel where we're staying so we're like totally big scene right in this small town and everybody's like who are these people oh, there you know like afterward when we were at our hotel <laughs> people are giving us the dirtiest eyes ever but it was really kind of funny like, so we keep on us what we call a get out of free jail card, which is a, a card signed by the company saying, yes, we hired them to do this. But police don't really give you an opportunity to present that initially, right? So it was, it was kind of confrontational at first. They cuffed us, they separated us, and then started to question us. And that was the first opportunity I had. The officer asked me, do you have your ID on you? And I was like, yes, I have my ID. And by the way, I have this card, that this get out of free jail card. And the, the officers were not aware of this. This is the first time they've ever run into such a thing. After the fact, I requested the police footage and I kind of watched it for review, right? And after they question us, the officers get back together and they're like, these guys say they were hired by company X, but that guy said he picked the lock on the door. And you could see the visual confusion on the second officer like, that doesn't make any sense. Why would he do that, you know? So it's really kind of interesting afterward. Our point of contact did show up and he explained it to the officers just for anybody who's listening in the future, like companies like this, when they do a physical pen test, they need to inform law enforcement if they're planning to involve law enforcement. Law enforcement like generally was like, yeah, if you're going to do this kind of thing, just let us know and we'll come and respond like we typically would, but we're not going to come lights a blazing and risking our officers' lives to get there when we know it's just a field exercise. And Reversely, like the pen testers don't deserve to be treated like fugitives 
I don't know, maybe they do. Maybe you feel like we do, but it would be a little different should the police officers know ahead of time what the arrangement is. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people that maybe don't understand the whole physical penetration test, but organizations use this all the time to test their defenses and test their response mechanisms. You put cameras in place, you put sensors, and you need a way to verify that they work. But if you are using just internal people, then they always tend to walk in a certain way or they do things a certain way and it becomes very predictable. So you like to hire outside people that come in with fresh eyes that are usually a little more skilled at, you know, evading and circumventing various controls, because what you want to know at the end of the day is where are your weak points and what other compensating control or what other mitigation factor do I need to put in place to address that? I've heard a lot of stories over the years from, you know, people like yourself that do penetration testing. And and I think there's this general consensus that's starting to come about that law enforcement doesn't really understand this. And that sometimes, especially in small towns, you want to go to the local sheriff ahead of time and say, hey, by the way, here's my paperwork, my contract that I've been hired by this company to go and test. Just so you know, when, when all of this starts to happen, you know, this is all on the up and up. Yeah, no, we had that talk and that, that's not IoT related, but even still, like, as a social engineer, right, it really needs to come from the company that's getting the pen test. Like if I am the pen tester, I can go up to the police and say, hey, I'm gonna break into this place tomorrow, don't arrest me. That shouldn't work, right? Like somebody else needs to vet me. I can't, <laughs> if, if the police are like, okay, that's fine, break in tomorrow, we won't arrest you. That sounds like a really huge gap in the system, right? <laughs> Yeah. So, so, the, but there definitely needs to be some sort of communication, you know, maybe bigger cities, you know, the law enforcement is maybe a little more accustomed to it or they have private security or whatever, but definitely in the smaller towns and smaller rural areas, it can be a huge problem. Getting the point of contact at the company and the leader of the pen testing group, maybe going and meeting with law enforcement directly or, or together could probably solve a lot of problems there. I fully agree. Yeah. It's communication on the side of the pen testers and the company getting the pen test that needs to get law enforcement involved just in case something were to happen. So before we, uh, you know, kind of wrap up and talk, you know, and get some of your ideas and thoughts about the future of, of IOT and smart and connected stuff, I, I see there's a lot of badges behind you. We want to talk about some of those and kind of the things that you work on. Yeah. And I've actually thinned them out. You can see my hooks across the top. They used to be covered in badges, but I've kind of pulled away some of them and I've only saved the ones that mean the most to me. A lot of these are either from different conferences I enjoyed or the badge just stood out for some particular reason. I, I, I got to say, one of my favorites is, is the, uh, the DEF CON black badge from DEF CON 29. This one, we got the black badge by doing badge hacking from the badge hacking competition. So before the conference even started, we were researching the badge and what components were on it. Um, that year, they sent a number of badges to attendees at home. They mailed them to people who wouldn't be able to attend in person. But because of that, some of our badges arrived before the conference. And so we were able to pull a firmware image from one of those. Then when we arrived at the conference, compare that to the firmware image of the actual challenge, and we could see what was changed. So we knew like this code is clearly only related to the challenge, whereas all the rest of this code you know, has, is boilerplate or deals with the, the blinking the lights or the pushing the buttons, which allowed us to, to focus our reverse engineering just on the challenge and give us a leg up. Not all of the challenge was RE-based, but having that data gave us, I think, a leg up on the competition that allowed us to, I think, complete it earlier than others. So that one's one of my favorites. I didn't even show it. 
Yeah, the black badge at DEFCON is definitely a very sought-after thing. So very few people get that. So it's it's a testimony to how good you are at what you do. So <laughs> appreciate that. Thank you. Before we close up, you know, are, do you have any thoughts on this IoT smart and connected space and what you're excited to see or worried to see or what you're, you're looking forward to? Kind of wh- where do you think this is going to go? I think I'm fairly excited going forward. I mean, there's concerns uh, that are always going to be there for me. We kind of talked about some of them. I like that there are some public specs going forward to have a baseline for this is what's secure. And, and that's exciting that it's not so much the wild west of IoT going forward. That as one, vendors are learning as well that, hey, we need to take this serious. We can't just throw on whatever the easiest solution is that gets the job done. We actually have to consider life cycle of the device. How do we update? How do we repair? If there is an issue, and, and one, try to have it as secure from the start, right? It has to be planned into the development process. And we're seeing vendors start to do that. So overall, I feel like it's getting better. We talked about having certification for a minimum standard. I think that will come in some forms shortly. I don't know how long shortly is, years, months, whatever. But generally, I think the future is optimistic for IoT. However, these things can live for a long time. And so we're going to be living with the shadows of our past and the shadows of devices. So like I mentioned, we talked about ICS. The life cycle on an ICS device isn't like the life cycle on a consumer device where it's you know maybe two, three years. Those things live 20 to 30 years. And so development decisions that took place 10 years ago are something that a lot of places have to deal with long-term. And so... Like I said, that these vulnerabilities and these design decisions are just something we're going to have to find mitigations for, for mistakes we've made in the past in IoT development. Yeah, you know, you think like an IoT device, it could very easily last 10 years. Light bulbs typically don't last that long, but it's in theory, they could last 10 years. And so many of these companies just don't do OTA over the air updates. So they're not patching or the fundamental design at the beginning was not sufficient. So it doesn't matter how much patching they do, the device is always going to be insecure. But like you mentioned on the ICS systems, industry control systems, some of these programs can exist for decades. And, you know, we've looked at some in the past where they have modules that are soldered into a control and it's like, how are you going to update that? And so when we start thinking about the security and all the pieces, you really have to kind of take a long-term view and then figure out how you're going to build mitigating controls and compensating controls to protect it. So now, now summing up overall positive things, but we've got some growing pains on the way to get there. Yeah. Well, thanks, Waylon. It's always fun to talk with you. It's good to uh, spend a, you know, a little bit of time this morning, and uh, I hope things go well. Thank you. Thank you, Brett. It's great to see you again. Thank you so much for joining us today for this episode of Smarter Everything. We really love feedback, so please consider taking a moment to send us a comment or a rating on Apple Podcasts. And if you have time and you like this episode, please consider subscribing. We'll see you next time for Smarter Everything.